This is the Learning Capacity Podcast. You're with Colin Klupik. A warm welcome to you wherever you happen to be listening in. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast Australia, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience programs since 1999. In this episode, we talk with Steve Miller, Chief Scientist at Novanix, about the emerging field of educational neuroscience. It sounds like it could just be the next popular thing in educational talk, but Steve suggests that it's much bigger, and not all that unusual compared to other new things. For example, there was a time when MRI scans were treated with some doubt in the medical field, but now they're commonplace. It seems that the same thing is emerging for teachers and educational neuroscience. Let's find out more about this emerging area of research. Steve Miller, thanks for joining us today. Um, You're welcome, Colin. Uh, It's great to be here. Let's talk briefly about the history of neuroscience and the emergence of educational neuroscience. Now, there's some, some big words in there. Um, neuroscience, uh, as far as I, I'm aware, is still a relatively young science, I guess, in, in terms of its, its popular awareness. Can you give us a brief description of the emerging field of educational neuroscience? Right. Well, um, it's really been about, uh, you know, the advent of, of brain imaging technologies um, that, are, uh, that, don't, uh, that aren't harmful right, that can be done without any problem it has really been something that uh, emerged in the in, uh, initially in the late 60s, early 70s, but was applied to um, individuals who had been in accidents or broken brains and looking to see what part of their brain, you know, uh, wasn't working and tying that to cognitive problems. It really was um, in the 70s, early 80s, when they started to apply that to disorders of learning. So things like dyslexia, autism, et cetera. And then um, really in the, in the late 90s was the first time when you started to have commercial entities, companies that started to try and leverage neuroscience tools and methods to answer educational issues of learning in the, in the general population. So not just working with individuals with dyslexia, but working with everybody's uh, learning capability. Now, I've sometimes received reactions when I've been talking to uh, teachers at, at conferences or, uh, say, faculty days or things like that. And, and when you say things like educational neuroscience, the reaction can sometimes be a bit lackluster or people might think, oh, yeah, great, here's the next thing I've got to think about. What would you say to the skeptics who think that this is just another excuse for sounding intellectual? Anytime you have something new, that there is a certain commitment towards learning the vocabulary, um, learning the information, learning the way that, that a field begins, that you have to kind of pay your dues before you're going to really reap the rewards of it. And so I think everybody, if, if they don't know a lot about how neuroscience and how the brain works, there's some dues to be paid for them to be able to benefit from that. You can think about genetics. Um, you know, um, I remember, you know, when you know we when we had initial discussions about introducing the, the concept of genetics um, or cloning uh, and stem cells to people in the in, in the 80s and nowadays you know um, everybody knows what a clone is everybody knows what uh, 
you know, DNA are and what their role is at some level. So, so I think that there's a certain amount of dues that need to be paid. And, and unfortunately people will roll their eyes when they have to learn what a neuron is and, you know, some of these other elements. But, but I think that the, the key that I try to get across to them is that when one looks out at the field and says, let's look at what some of the more research proven, right? So we're talking about the levels of evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, is there strong evidence? Has there been randomized, well-designed controlled trials? Um, or is it basically, you know, the recommendation from an individual expert, which we call low evidence? Mm -hmm. Um, when one looks at the strong evidence that's out there, there's a bit of neuroscience out there. There are, um, there's a, a math program out of, um, you know, a group of scientists, um, and they just finished a large scale randomized clinical trial that showed that they could raise math scores higher than anything else that's um, been studied in the math space. Um, and, you know, I, I very proudly go up and say, you know, this came out of the University of California, Berkeley, you know, neuroscience program. Yeah. This uh, Now, um, Mike Mersnick, who's a member of the National Academy of Sciences in the States for his work in brain plasticity, developed a cochlear implant, part of the team to develop the cochlear implant. Um, you know, uh, Mike's, uh, I worked with Mike and, and, and again, a group of other colleagues to take brain plasticity training and, and bring it to the masses. Um, and so companies like Lumosity, Posit Science, where uh, Mike started, Scientific Learning, which Mike started, those are all companies that, that have published um, clinical trials that you might expect to see, you know, uh, you know done uh, for a drug to get approved. Mm. And so, and so the research evidence is enormously strong. Now that's complicated, you know, it's right. You, you you're not going to have good science that that's, that's overly simplistically communicated. Um, and so you have to know, and you have to learn the vocabulary. You have to know what, what does it mean when somebody says, you know, they ran a quasi experimental study. You have to learn that if you're in education now, because if you're going to review evidence, that's a real term, you know? Yeah, and sure. so, and so, um, uh, if you want to bring science to a practice, you have to learn the terminology. And so, um, I, you know, I, I always take it and say, not everybody's ready for it. it. It does take some people a couple years to listen to it. And so, but they do have to, they do have to start or they're not going to realize that there's evidence out there that they should be weighing. So what you're telling um, what you're telling me though is that this field is coming and people people need to start reading up about it. Um, actually, that there were um, uh, there was more published in neuroscience in the last five years than there was in the preceding. Some people say hundred, but let's just say a really long time. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so so basically, it's coming or it's it's here. Yeah, I would. What I would say is it's here, and if you haven't looked, you may not have noticed it. But, you know, uh, and, and then here's the example I, 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 you know, I give people on um, pro athletes are, are you know, go, are doing neuroscience training to be better at, at being uh, competitive athletes. Uh, the military in a dozen countries uses brain training to make, you know, their um, their teams elite more consistently elite. Mm. Um, every hospital right, has, has a neuroscience team <laughs> that uses neuroscience technologies in neurology to help assess things. Companies around the world, if you look at the fortune, the top 100 companies, I promise you half of them have done a neuroscience study to, the, to, to see where they should be doing in making something more effective 
or impacting decision-making, how did decision-making work among their consumers? The place where it's last, to be honest, is in, in the learning space, in yeah. education. Yeah. Now, and part of that is, I mean, I, just to be fair, I want education to be late at some things, right? Because I, if I drop my kids off there, I don't want them picking up the brand new thing um, every time it comes out or every week they'd be changing the curriculum. Yeah, sure. That's but it is time. But, but it is time now. <laughs> yeah, well, I had a, I had a conversation with another neuroscientist uh, a couple of months back uh, about this topic, and uh, she suggested that what we're talking about here is uh, a pedagogical model versus a scientific model of teaching. So, pedagogy being the philosophy of education, and science being something that can be tested through hard data. Um, in your experience, are these two things complementary, or are they mutually exclusive? Well, I mean, I, I think they're complementary. And again, I, I look at the history of the me- of the medical model in medicine, right? Um, you know, it was uh, probably now about a hundred years ago, and most people don't realize that that you know physicians were fighting to bring science to medicine, mm. um, right? We didn't we didn't have approvals. We didn't have you know. Uh, uh, so um, you know, there were a variety of people who operated and did things medically, and they did what they called their best practice. And it was based on a pedagogy of, of communication from previous individuals telling them, but, but there was no study designs. There was no science to it. And now I want you to really think about it. What would you do if you went to your doctor and you heard him stand in the hallway um, right before, you know, you're about to get a, a prognosis about something you should do that, you know, that you want to change. Maybe you're at risk for diabetes or you have another issue and you hear your doctor say, I, I don't want to hear about science results, <laughs> right? I, I, you know, that's not important to me. I'm not looking at the newest science that came out. I don't go to conferences to hear science and I'm not going to read that new study. Um, would you, would you still go to that doctor? Yeah, I, prob- I think you, probably not. Yeah, right? probably not. <laughs> and I think that, and I think educators are getting to the same point where they, they have to, they have to understand that there is a practice element to their field, just like there is for doctors practice medicine, right? But at the same time, we expect and we hold our doctors responsible for being up to date on the new science and new technologies. We don't want to hear that, that had I lived in a different city, I would have had a different outcome to my, to my treatment, Mm. right? We don't, Mm. we don't want to, we don't want to think that life and death decisions in a hospital are regional, right? So how do we do that? Well, we expect our doctors to read articles. We expect them to go to conferences. Um, and for that, you know, they, they benefit. Now, they still get to come back and make practice decisions and making recommendations to you. They're not going to take five years. If they took 20 years to learn something, they're not going to take 20 years to explain your options. So they've got to synthesize their 20 years experience and they've got to give you in their practice a decision that helps, hopefully helps you immediately. And we want education to get to the same level. So I think that you're going to have, you're going to bring science to education and learning with new tools and new methods. Just like, um, I re- you know, I'm old enough where I remember when, um, I, do you know what MRI is? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so believe it or not, there was once a, a debate about whether MRI should be used to inform surgical practices. Oh, is that right? Of course, because wow. doctors had used x-rays. Well, I guess I mean it stands to reason based on what we've been talking about, but I guess to, I guess now it just sounds so unbelievable. And so you had doctors who said, "I have thirty years using an X-ray to make that surgical decision. 
I'm not going to use this new MRI thing. I've never used it before to make the decision. Mm. So, so doctors for a while, right. They did both x-rays and MRIs, right. Cause the picture does look different. Yeah. And so they said, I'm going to, I'm going to make my decision looking at both pieces of evidence. And when I get both pieces now, even today, based on what they're looking at, they might ask for an MRI and an x-ray because mm. they want to see different contrasts of bone or muscle tissue or tendon or ligament. But, but now, right. It's based on their practice experience and science, but you know, and again, it's, it's, it's completely appropriate for a surgeon to say, I have 20 years experience with great outcomes using x-rays. Why would I go to MRI? And and you and I would go, are you kidding? Have you seen those pictures? Like, of course you want to use MRI. And now, now uh, we can print a structure on a 3d printer to a surgeon before he goes in and operates. Do you want your surgeon to do that? No. Why would I want him to do that? Let's go get, (laughs) let's go get an (laughs) x-ray. So it's really, this is just the same old innovation curve problem, isn't it really in terms of early adoption and then the people who come behind. In my opinion, that's exactly the best way to think about it. So it's not to, you know, and again, we just like we want legislators to be thoughtful and deliberate and slow about decision-making right? We're going to punish them for not being, for not seeing the right answer right away. Um, but we want them to be thoughtful. I want education, educators to be thoughtful. Of course I do, right? They're telling kids what to do and those kids are related to me and I care about those outcomes. So I want them to go with what is their best practice recommendation. But when there's science out there that tells them they should be, right, considering new options, I want to say to them, hey, educator, how do you look for new evidence to impact your practice? Where do you go? How are you informed? When something new is presented to you, how do you incorporate it? Right? Mm. I think those are great questions. I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I might judge them if they say I don't have a process. Right? But, but you know, I want them to have a process for saying, oh, well, you know what? I go to conferences. And when I go to conferences, when there's a new innovation out there, if, you know, if it sounds like it's got good science behind it, I'm going to go back to my school and I'm going to say, when are we going to be testing this? Yeah, sure. I was actually going to ask you a, a, a bit of an extension question on this. Let's just imagine that uh, we've got thousands of teachers listening to this conversation and they're all unanimously saying, hooray, this is something we want to know more about. What's the best way for them to do that? So what, what authors should they look for? Are there specific conferences they can keep their, their eyes open for? How, how do we go about it? Well, um, uh, great question. So, so first of all, you know, there, um, <clears throat> so, uh, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to make this more generic than neuroscience, but I will answer it because you asked it for neuroscientists. So, you know, there's individuals like, um, Pat Wolf. Um, there is, um, uh, and I apologize, uh, Norman Deutsch. So D O I D G E. Mm-hmm. So he's written a great book about helping you think about, you know, the new innovations and new things that are out there. Um, Brian uh, uh, Butterworth wrote, uh, has written about math mm-hmm. uh, quite extensively in the, in, in the brain elements of math. Um, I think um, there's uh, brain and learning meetings that um, when one looks, um, you can see quite a bit of, uh, of research um that's being presented by, you know, uh, scientists that are publishing in areas. I think one of the keys, though, is you want to see if, if, 
if somebody says they're, you know, um, uh, an educational neuroscientist, where are they publishing? Are there articles going in things that have the word neuroscience in them? <laughs> you know, so, yeah. you know, cause, cause you, cause again, neuroscientists, you know, they eat and, and go to the gym and they do all kinds of things and they have opinions on things, but they're not always publishing those opinions in journals where, you know, people are going to be, um, contrasting, um, the expertise that they have. Yeah, right. Sure. So, so what you want is, um, that doesn't mean that, that an educator doesn't have a, a valid opinion. Of course they do. But if you're looking, you know, you want to look for conferences where you see people that are actually connected with, a, um, uh, you know, and the big one is psychology, right? So you can, if you're publishing in education, neuroscience journals, and you're in a psychology department, that's a pretty safe bet that that person probably is well versed in a variety of the, of the research methodologies, that you're looking for. And so, <clears throat> um, I, and I apologize. There's, there's a million authors out there that I read and I'm just drawing a blank right now on, uh, on some of them. But, um, and that doesn't, you know, and again, it doesn't mean that neuroscience has an advantage, right? We, we believe that the brain and behavior are connected. So people do extremely great psychology research <laughs> and, uh, and then neuroscientists try to find a way that that helps us learn about how, how nature and, and it has carved the brain, so to speak. And so, but there, there, there really is effective, um, uh, uh the mind Institute, um, has a, a math program that, that, uh, the, the head of that company, um, uh, is a PhD neuroscientist who, um, created that program while he was, um, in a neuroscience program. And so, um, uh, Mike Mersnick, who's a, a world recognized, uh, neuroscientist, um, uh, worked with, uh, me and other, uh, people, uh, other scientists, other neuroscientists and, uh, published research in, in some of the leading neuroscience journals about, uh, our work to help build language and reading skills. Um, again, that doesn't mean that, uh, but it means that, you know, we, we applied our knowledge of, experimental research design, science, et cetera, to the craft. Sure. Um, and so, um, and I think the beauty is when you, when you see something and you say to yourself, wow, somebody did some really great research on that. And that's been a best practice for a lot of educators for years. When you see those two things come together, you probably have something that's right. And so uh, just, just, just to summarize though, but, I, so, but the key is, is to be open-minded about learning those new terminologies and learning those new elements, because um, the, I think the worst thing we can do is to is to work in the world of education and believe that we know everything. okay Uh, something for all teachers to remember Uh, look I appreciate the effort that you've gone to to uh, draw out some names there for us because I can imagine that if you just did a Google search you you could be searching for a while but I guess what I was trying to do was to uh, avoid just saying to people in this interview oh so okay teachers just go and Google it and uh, at least with some names and I once again I appreciate how difficult it must be just to pull out a few given the, the size of the field um, it has helped us to uh, narrow down to a, a few targets. And also you've given us some some tips for uh, pulling a few threads together when we think about what might be uh, valid or, or not so valid. Steve Miller, sure. some very interesting insights. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to the Learning Capacity Podcast, brought to you by LearnFast Australia. If you'd like to comment on this podcast, send us an email to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. And to find out more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au, where you can also subscribe to the blog. Until next time, bye for now.